0: Today, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter five, verses one through 16. So if you wanna turn there, we'll be reading this entire section uh, as we prep uh, for what God has to say to us. Matthew five, verses one through 16 reads, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit Thank you, Lord, for what they teach us and how they challenge us. I pray that today you would help us, give us ears to hear uh, what your word says and what your spirit has to say to your church today. I pray, Lord, that we would be open and uh, receptive to your word, and I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Who wants to be happy? Yeah, we all want to be happy, right? So as we uh, look at the scripture today, Jesus starts by telling us how to be happy. He said, blessed or happy are those, and then he lists a number of things. That word blessed means happy. Maybe you've heard that before. I looked up the word happy. That means a permanent state of felicity. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't use the word felicity very often, so I wanted to look that word up and see what it meant. So I looked up Felicity, dictionary.com says, Felicity, the state of being happy, especially in a high degree. So especially being very happy, not just happy, but very happy. And it use the word bliss, you know, we think of wedded bliss, the joy, the happiness, right? Isn't that, isn't happiness what we're all looking for? Isn't that what the great philosophers of all of history have been trying to help us find and understand and realize? Our innate instinct and our urge is to continually pursue happiness. And so Jesus himself begins this sermon, his great sermon on the mount, by teaching us how to be happy. Each point makes this its central theme and its ultimate goal that we might be happy. So we're going to take a little bit of time on each one of these points and see what they have to say to us. We'll have to move fast because we got a lot of ground to cover if I'm going to get finished in time. Okay. So Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, this is not about material or monetary poverty. This is poverty of the spirit that Jesus is talking about. Here, the blessedness is that of those who, whatever their outward state may be, are in their inward life as those who feel that they have nothing of their own. They must be receivers before they give. They must be dependent on another's bounty and be, as it were, the bedesmen of the great king. Now, again, there's a word that I don't use very often, so I had to look it up. In this commentary, they use the word beadsman. Well, anybody ever heard that word? Neither had I. So I looked it up. A beadsman is an inmate of a poorhouse. Huh. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's talking about those who live in the spiritual poorhouse. That's interesting. One commentary... Commentary points to this description of the church in Laodicea as the opposite type of character. It says, they're thinking itself rich in the spiritual life when it is really as the pauper, destitute of the true riches, blind and naked. The church in Laodicea thought they were rich spiritually, but they were really paupers spiritually. And Jesus says, if we are poor in spirit, we are happy. We are very happy. You see, often we like to think and our culture likes to teach us that we are enough. We've got it all under control. We've got everything we need. But if we listen to the words of Jesus here, we are to be poor in spirit. We are to understand that we don't have it all under control. We don't have everything we need. We don't find what we need in us. In fact, John fifteen five says, apart from me, this is Jesus speaking, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is an important point for us to remember. You know, I'm reminded of us when I was 19 years old, I was still living in Oklahoma where I grew up, and I had been very actively involved in my home church there. And at 19 years old, I was already teaching a Sunday school class and helping lead worship and being involved in whatever activities were happening at the church, and I was really feeling God stir me that He wanted me to move into a full-time kind of ministry, prepping myself, that kind of thing, and I was concerned that I, I knew that I would need to leave my home church in order for that to happen, and I was concerned because I was doing a lot of things, and the church relied on me for a lot, and uh, I sat down with some pastor friends of mine who were really, really good friends. And uh, Bill and Linda Goldner, I'll never forget it. I was sitting at their dining room table and sharing my concerns. If I leave my church, who's going to do all the things that I do? Can you hear the pride in that? Who's going to do all the things I do if I leave? And they were such good friends. And they looked at me and they said, Clayton, God does not need you. Wow, my uh, 19-year-old brain uh, had a bit of a a challenge wrapping my mind around that. Because you see, I thought that if I left, it would just, nobody would do it. But you see, it's it's not my church. It's God's church. And see, God doesn't need me. I need him. And that is the point Jesus is making here. We must be poor in spirit and not think too highly of ourselves because the fact is, if we're not here, God is still in control and his church will still go on and he doesn't need me or you. We need him. Like it says here, we must rely and depend on him, not the other way around. So we need to be poor in spirit if we want to be happy. Jesus goes on to talk about those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. The word for mourn in the scripture is often coupled with the word, word weeping. When we look at Luke six twenty six. it says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. This mourning is over our sins, our own sins. The mourning Jesus is talking about is over the sins of others. And mourning over the stain which is left by sin upon our souls. I'm reminded of the example of Lot in the Old Testament. Peter talks about it in the New Testament in 2 Peter 2, 7. You see, Lot lived in an ungodly culture. He lived in a culture that did not honor God. And it says of him in the ESV, the English Standard Version, he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. That same verse in the New Living Translation says he was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. And if we look in the New International Version, it says he was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. So when we talk about mourning, when Jesus teaches us to mourn, he is talking about mourning over our sins, mourning over the sins of the people and the culture around us. Because that leaves a stain on our soul, and we should mourn over that. See, Lot was tormented in his soul over the lawlessness around him in Sodom and Gomorrah. My question to us is, are we? Are we tormented by the ungodliness all around us? Am I? Are you? Do we mourn? about our own sins, and do we mourn about the sinfulness of the society and the culture around us? Godly sorrow, Second Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, What longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done at every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. See, godly sorrow looks on what the world does and upon sin in our own lives with indignation, with alarm, with a longing to see justice done. Godly sorrow, it says, that's mourning, results in repentance and forgiveness of sins that is comfort. That's what the scripture says. Those who mourn will be comforted. Isaiah 40 and 1, God speaks to the prophet, says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. You see, it is God's desire that we be comforted, that we be forgiven, that we be healed. That is his desire. And this comfort speaks of forgiveness of our sins, speaks of having peace with him. It speaks of having his favor on our lives. It speaks of the hope of our heavenly inheritance and the enjoyment of that inheritance for eternity. See, God wants us to mourn over our sins and the sins of our world. And when we do and we repent, then we are comforted. We experience all the goodness and joy that comes with that. Moving on, Jesus talks about the meek. Blessed are the meek. Aristotle defined meekness as the character of one who has the passion of resentment under control, and who is therefore tranquil and untroubled. The passion of resentment—that's like when we get angry. Somebody offends us, and we want to get mad. Do we keep that under control? Do do we maintain tranquility? Do we remain untroubled? The Benson Commentary describes the meek like this. A person of a mild, gentle, long-suffering. That long-suffering is patience. And forgiving disposition who are slow to anger, slow to anger and averse from wrath. Not easily provoked. And if at any time at all provoked, soon pacified. And otherwise we quickly get over it. Who never resent an injury, nor return evil for evil, but make it their care to overcome evil with good. Who by the sweetness, affability, courteousness, and kindness of their disposition endeavor to reconcile such as may be offended and to win them over to peace and love. The meek person works toward reconciliation is not easily provoked you know we live in a society that is easily provoked and i don't know about you but there are times when i can be easily provoked but the meek person keeps that under control maintains the equilibrium be remains untroubled and unruffled barnes notes on the bible says it this way meekness is patience in the reception of injuries It is neither meanness, nor a surrender of our rights, nor cowardice, but it is the opposite of sudden anger, of malice, of long-harbored vengeance. He that is constantly ruffled, that suffers every little insult or injury to throw him off his guard and to raise a storm of passion within, is at the mercy of every mortal that chooses to disturb him. Doesn't that sound like the world we live in? EVERYBODY SEEMS TO BE OFFENDED IF YOU SAY SOMETHING THEY'RE OFFENDED IF YOU DON'T SAY SOMETHING THEY'RE OFFENDED BLESSED ARE THE MEEK WHO WHEN OFFENDED KEEP THE PEACE KEEP THEIR MOUTH SHUT STAY CALM DON'T HOLD uh, A VENGEFUL ATTITUDE DON'T GET SUDDENLY ANGRY Don't have malice toward others. Jesus said, happy, blessed are the meek. He went on to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, we hunger and thirst for a lot of things. You know, the latest iPhone, right? The latest technology, that new big screen with all the stuff. I can't even tell you what it is because I don't have one like that. I'm not smart enough, okay, to have a smart TV, all right? But we want those gadgets. We want more likes on social media. You know, we look and there's that little thumbs up or maybe a heart emoji. We hunger and thirst for these things. We hunger and thirst for the applause of others or the bigger house or the newer car or the job that pays more. There's lots of things that we hunger and thirst for. But do we truly hunger and thirst for righteousness? HOW DO WE KNOW WHAT WE HUNGER AND THIRST FOR? WELL, TELL ME WHERE YOU SPEND YOUR TIME. TELL ME WHERE YOU SPEND YOUR MONEY. TELL ME THE THINGS YOU THINK ABOUT AND DREAM ABOUT. AND WE CAN TELL WHAT YOU HUNGER AND THIRST FOR, WHAT WE HUNGER AND THIRST FOR. I LOVE HOW THE Benson COMMENTARY CHALLENGES US IN THIS REGARD. DON'T DESIRE WHAT OTHERS HAVE. DON'T DESIRE THE WORLD'S GOODS. Sincerely, earnestly, and perseveringly desire holiness of heart and life, holiness of heart and life, or deliverance from all sinful dispositions and practices. Desire complete restoration of your soul to the image of God in which you are created. This should be our fervent, constant, increasing, restless, and active desire. Holy zeal and fervor of soul in pursuit of the highest degree of universal goodness, which will end in complete satisfaction. Longing to be like God, hungering and thirsting for his righteousness. This kind of hungering and thirsting will be abundantly satisfied and abundantly satisfying. Can somebody say amen? Hungering and thirsting. For righteousness Jesus goes on blessed are the merciful Erasmus Dutch philosopher and Catholic priest says this the person who demonstrates mercy will account another person's misery as their own I think of the good Samaritan when the good Samaritan saw the man who'd been beat robbed and left for dead he didn't just walk on by he got in the ditch and he cared for the man And then when he cared for him, he took him to a place where he could stay and paid so he could stay there as long as it took for him to recover. He made that man's misery his own. The person who demonstrates mercy will weep over the calamities of others. When somebody else is hurting, we weep with them. The person who is merciful will go out of of their own poverty, will feed the hungry and clothe the naked. And the person who is merciful will admonish those who are in error, inform the ignorant, and pardon the offended. Oh, there's a lot there. Jesus is teaching us a lot of stuff, and it's challenging stuff. And finally, it says, the person who is merciful will use their utmost endeavors to comfort others. Because you see, to be merciful is to be like our Heavenly Father. This should compel us to imitate Him. He was touched and is touched by the feeling of our infirmities and our weaknesses. <clears throat> Hebrews 4.15 tells us that. We should be moved by the weaknesses of our fellow men in the same way. His purpose was to relieve our infirmities and our weaknesses, and he even took them upon himself. Isaiah 53.4 says, he carried our sorrows and he went to the cross. Amen? HE WENT ABOUT DOING GOOD AND ULTIMATELY GAVE HIS LIFE TO PAY THE PENALTY FOR OUR SINS. THAT IS MERCY IN ACTION. AND THAT IS THE WAY WE SHOULD LIVE OUR LIVES. WE SHOULD DO NO LESS. WE SHOULD FOLLOW HIS EXAMPLE. NEXT JESUS SAYS, BLESSED ARE THE PURE IN HEART. THE PURE IN HEART. PSALM 24-4, WHO MAY ASCEND THE MOUNTAIN OF THE LORD? HE WHO HAS CLEAN HANDS AND A WHAT? A PURE HEART who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. 2 Timothy 2.22 So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 1 Peter one twenty two. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart so we see this teaching of Jesus that we need to have a pure heart throughout scripture old testament as well as new testament one commentator wrote the heart represents our desires and affections we're talking about having a pure heart this is not an outward or ceremonial purity and not the absence of one special form of sensual sin purity of heart excludes all baseness all hate all all greed, all lust, fill in the blank with anything bad, anything anti-scripture, anything against the law of God. Purity of heart excludes vain and unprofitable thoughts. It excludes earthly and sensual desires. It excludes pride, self-will, discontent, impatience, anger, malice, envy, covetousness, ambition. Wow. I don't know about you, but that feels heavy. But God wants us to be pure in heart. He doesn't want us to have hypocrisy or corrupt desires. He wants us to order our thoughts, our intentions, our affections according to his word. He wants our motives and our thoughts to be pure. And if we are pure in heart, we will be most happy. Remember 2 Timothy 2.22 so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Moving on quickly, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. James three seventeen and 18, but the wisdom from above is first pure. We discussed that earlier, right? Just now, pure in heart. Then peaceable, gentle. We talked about gentleness when we talked about meekness open to reason, full of mercy. We discussed that earlier as well. God wants us to be merciful and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A peacemaker is not only peaceable, that means I'm not just peaceable myself, but acts energetically upon others to make peace. The peacemaker actively works to make peace it's an action. The peacemaker endeavors to promote peace in others. The peacemaker studies to be quiet. The peacemaker, as much as they can, they live peaceably with all men. Isn't that what Romans 12, 18 says? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live in peace with all, live peaceably with all. The peacemaker avoids contention where it exists, avoids contention. The peacemaker works to heal the differences of brothers and neighbors, to reconcile the contending parties and to restore peace wherever it is broken as well as preserve it where it is. So there's a lot of action right there. It's not just about me, but it's me helping other people to reconcile. It's me working to bring peace in relationships. And when I do that, Jesus said, I'm blessed, I'm happy. I am most happy. Finally, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You see, some of us throughout history and even today are persecuted because of our steady belief and our adherence to any article of the Christian faith. You know, the the culture doesn't like Christianity these days much. But if we stand up against that, we can expect to be persecuted. That's what's happened throughout all of history. Those persecuted for righteousness sake are persecuted for their performance of any duty which they owe to God, to their neighbor or themselves, and for their obedience to the commands of God. It's almost hard to believe, but when you do something good these days in the name of Christ, people will get mad. Isn't that amazing? It reminds me of when uh, the lame man was healed and the Pharisees and the church people in the New Testament were mad at Jesus for healing him. And then when Peter and the, the apostles did that in Acts, they got mad. And Peter's like, if, if we're bringing into account because of doing something good, well, that doesn't even make sense, does it? But that's where the world is. The world will, if we stand up for what is good and right and and biblical, the world is going to persecute us. Testimony about Moses in Hebrews 11 says this, Moses, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. See, Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. If we stand up for righteousness... We can expect to be persecuted. And Jesus says, if that's the case, we are abundantly blessed. If you haven't realized it by now, these ideas are revolutionary. They are countercultural. They are counterintuitive. Even to us as just hu- our humanity, it's countercultural to do these things. It's counterintuitive to be like this. What Jesus is saying is revolutionary. AND I THINK IT'S REVOLUTIONARY EVEN TO THE CHURCH TODAY. YOU KNOW, IT'S CHALLENGING TO US TO BE THESE THINGS, TO LIVE OUT THESE THINGS. The world is not poor in spirit. The world does not mourn over its sin or the sin of others. The world is not meek or gentle with others who slight them or offend them. The world cares nothing about true righteousness, but whatever is right in their own eyes. The world is not merciful. The world's desires are not pure. The world talks a lot about peace, but it is not adept at all at making peace. The world seems bent on persecuting those of us who stand up for our faith and convictions and confront them with their own unrighteousness. So you can see how these teachings of Jesus are revolutionary and countercultural. So when we live like this, we stand in stark contrast to the worldly culture in which we live. And guess what? That's the point. Jesus said we're blessed because we're going to stand out against the culture and we're going to shine like a light in the darkness. Can somebody say amen?
1: Matthew. Matthew. Bye bye. I've got it. Mm. The opening? Yes. What is it? A map. The what? Directions. Where people should look to find me. Okay. Give me a moment. Mm. for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. choice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Yes, but how is it the map? If someone wants to find me, those are the groups they should look for. And then, you are the salt of the earth.
0: (sighs) (sighs) To quote the line that Jesus said in that clip, if someone wants to find me, those are the groups they should look for. That clip was taken from the series, The Chosen. If someone wants to find me, those are the groups they should look for. And Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A CITY set ON A HILL CANNOT BE HIDDEN NOR DO PEOPLE LIGHT A LAMP AND PUT IT UNDER A BASKET BUT ON A STAND AND IT GIVES LIGHT TO ALL IN THE HOUSE. IN THE SAME WAY LET YOUR LIGHT SHINE BEFORE OTHERS SO THAT THEY MAY SEE YOUR GOOD WORKS AND GIVE GLORY TO YOUR FATHER WHO IS IN HEAVEN. WE ARE THE SALT OF THE EARTH. SALT HAS A VARIETY OF USES NOTED BY MANY COMMENTATORS, PRESERVATIVE, FLAVORING AGENT, EVEN FERMENTATION-RETARDANT in fertilizer and we will touch on each of these. As a preservative for meats and other foods, uh, this is certainly not a new concept for most of us. It's been done for uh, many, many decades and centuries but how does it apply to us? Speaking of Christians, Charles Spurgeon said this, in their character there is a preserving force to keep the rest of society from utter corruption. IF THEY WERE NOT SCATTERED AMONG MEN, THE RACE WOULD PUTREFY. YOU SEE, OUR PRESENCE ON EARTH HAS A PRESERVING EFFECT UPON OUR CULTURE. SALT IS ALSO A FLAVORING AGENT. HOW MANY LIKE SALT? NO, NOBODY USES SALT IN THEIR FOOD? IF THERE'S NOT ENOUGH SALT, DO YOU GET OUT THE SALT SHAKER? SALT IS A FLAVORING AGENT IN THE SAME WAY THAT SALT ADDS FLAVOR OR ENHANCES FLAVOR AND MAKES FOOD MORE APPETIZING TO US. THE CHRIST-LIKE LIVES WE LIVE, THOSE LIVES THAT ARE HUMBLE, GRIEVED OVER SIN, MEEK, HUNGERING AND THIRSTING FOR RIGHTEOUSNESS, MERCIFUL, PURE, peacemaking, ENDURING PERSECUTION. THESE KINDS OF LIVES WILL MAKE THE GOSPEL OF JESUS CHRIST APPETIZING. To unbelievers around us, Spurgeon also said, There is a secret something which is the secret of the believer's power. That something is savor. It is not easy to define it, but yet it is absolutely essential to usefulness. You know, as I think about Spurgeon's uh, words there, it is not easy to define. I think, well, perhaps. It's not as difficult to divine as we think. Perhaps that savor looks like what Jesus described right here in Matthew 5. The world around us is looking for something that is truly satisfying, and the gospel of Jesus is that thing. When we demonstrate and display the characteristics Jesus outlined here in the Beatitudes, amidst the darkness of the world around us, we make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive, we make it appealing. We make it appetizing, like salt. Paul instructed Titus in Titus chapter 2, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Now, Paul is talking about Titus teaching slaves, but you know, we are slaves to Christ. And I think these things apply to us. We are to work in everything to try to please him. He's our master, right? Not to talk back or buck what he's told us to do, but to submit and to do what he said. To show that we can be fully trusted And so that we can, in every way, make the teaching about God our Savior attractive to the world around us. Our lives should make the gospel of Jesus flavorful and appetizing. Salt was also used to retard fermentation in manure or fertilizer. If we look at the parallel passage of scripture uh, from Matthew 5, it's in Luke chapter 14, Luke says this, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And here's where the connection is. It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. See, salt was put on the manure to help it prepare the soil for the seed, but if the salt wasn't salty anymore, it wasn't even good for that. According to Ellicott's commentary, the salt serves mingling with the dunghill to manure and prepare the ground for the reception of the seed. Do our lives help to prepare the soil of men's hearts to receive the seed of God's word? Or does our lack of saltiness or lack of flavor Hinder unbelievers from hearing and receiving it. What if the salt has lost its flavor? Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Barnes' notes on the Bible say, "Real piety, true religion, is the of vast value in the world. It keeps pure, keeps it pure, and saves it from corruption, as salt does meat. But a mere profession of religion is fit for nothing. A Christian, quote unquote, life, devoid of the characteristics outlined by Jesus in the Beatitudes, is really an oxymoron." If we call ourselves a Christian, but we don't reflect these characteristics that Jesus put in Scripture right here for us, it's a contradiction. Second Peter 1, 5-8 says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. And here's the point, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These characteristics that Peter outlines here, the characteristics that Jesus gave us here in Matthew 5, these qualities are effective in preserving the culture from complete corruption. They are effective in flavoring the gospel of Jesus Christ and making it up appetizing, and they are good and used for preparing the soil of men's hearts to receive it. But the lack of these qualities renders our lives ineffective, unproductive, and useless in the kingdom of God. Craig Keener said, tasteless salt lacks value. And so does a professed disciple who lacks a genuine commitment. And that genuine commitment is shown when we put Jesus' instructions into practice. Spurgeon said once again, you can salt meat, but you cannot salt salt. We put salt on meat to preserve it, but if the salt doesn't have any flavor, you can't re-salt it. It is no longer good for anything, it says in Matthew thirteen, five thirteen, for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So we are to be the salt of the earth. But we're also to be the light of the world Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. I won't read that entire scripture, but light in dictionary.com defines the light as something that makes things visible or affords illumination. You see, Jesus himself is the true light, and we see that in John chapter 1, the true light. Uh, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus is the true light. As his disciples, we only shine the light that we derive from him, and that light serves to testify of him, and it illuminates the way to him. So we shine and reflect his light in order to lead people back to him. Just like John the Baptist, it says in John 1, 6 through 8, he was not the light, you can see that there in the last sentence, but came to bear witness of the light. Ephesians 5, 8 tells us, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And it tells us to walk as children of light. We are to bear witness. Amen? We are to bear witness. LIGHT ILLUMINATES THE DARKNESS AND MAKES THINGS VISIBLE. EPHESIANS 5.13, WHEN ANYTHING IS EXPOSED TO LIGHT, IT BECOMES VISIBLE. LIGHT IS OBVIOUS. MATTHEW 5.14, A CITY ON A HILL CANNOT BE HIDDEN. IT IS LIT UP. LIGHT SHOULD NOT BE HIDDEN. MATTHEW 5.15, NOR DO PEOPLE LIGHT A LAMP AND PUT IT UNDER A BASKET, BUT PUT IT ON A STAND, AND IT GIVES LIGHT TO ALL IN THE HOUSE. You see, we don't turn on a light or a lamp and uh, put it under something to hide the light. That would defeat the purpose. The same is true about our lives. When we believe the gospel and are born again, the light of Christ fills our lives. Aren't you thankful? And we are not to to hide that light. We're not to hide his light. But we're to let it shine just like it says in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes. We are to be poor in spirit. We are to mourn over our sins. We are to be meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness, etc. We shine our light. Again, Charles Spurgeon writes this, Christ has lighted us that we may enlighten the world. It is not ours to lie in concealment as to our religion. God intends his grace to be as conspicuous as a city built on the mountain's brow. To attempt to conceal his spirit is as foolish as to put a lamp under a bushel. The lamp should be seen by all that are in the house, and so should the Christian's graces. Our lights should shine. 1 Peter 2.9 tells us that we are a chosen race We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. And the reason for this is that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The King James Version says we are to show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'm going to have you stand and I'm going to have the worship team come and the band at this time as we bring this to a close. Man, we've covered a lot of ground, right? And some heavy stuff, some challenging stuff. But when we live our lives according to the characteristics outlined by Jesus here in Matthew 5 and others throughout the Bible, we will stand out. Can somebody say amen? We will stand out. We will shine like stars in the dark night. And this is God's desire for us. He will His will for our lives in the world is that we shine like stars in the darkness. We see this in Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Like the song that Peyton sang earlier, we are the light of the world. We are a city on a hill. SO WE GOTTA, WE GOTTA, WE GOTTA LET OUR LIGHT SHINE, AMEN, AMEN. DOES ANYBODY IN THE HOUSE REMEMBER THE LITTLE KIDS SONG WE USED TO SING, THIS LITTLE LIGHT OF MINE? IT'S A GOOD REMINDER, A SIMPLE LITTLE REMINDER. THIS LITTLE LIGHT OF MINE, I'M GONNA LET IT SHINE, THIS LITTLE LIGHT OF MINE, SING IT WITH us. I'm going to let it shine, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Then it says, hide it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No. I'M GONNA LET IT SHINE HIDE IT UNDER A BUSHEL NO I'M GONNA LET IT SHINE LET IT SHINE LET IT SHINE LET IT SHINE FATHER IT'S BEEN A CHALLENGING WORD TODAY we have BEEN CHALLENGED IN A LOT OF WAYS THROUGH YOUR WORD HELP US GOD TO BE WILLING to hear what your spirit has taught us today and to adjust where we need to adjust so that we might shine our light in this dark culture, in this dark world, because there are people all around us who need to know Jesus and our light can lead them to you. I pray, Lord, that we would not hide our light under a bushel, would not hide our light here inside the four walls of this building But Lord, when we go out from here, that we would let our light shine by living the way Jesus taught us to live, that we would be poor in spirit, that we would be meek and merciful, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness and seek to make peace and to bring peace to our world. And even if it means we are persecuted, Lord, for the stand that we take, may we be willing to take that stand so that we shine the light so that we are salt and light in the world. Father, thank you for the challenge. Help us, Lord, to accept that challenge and live according to your word. As you bow your heads this morning, you know, before we can let our light shine, we have to first have the light of Jesus in us. We have to accept his light and his salvation for us. And maybe you're here today and you've never Experience that light never had the light of God's love shine in your life in your heart and you want to you want to commit your life to him and experience that light so then you can shine in this dark world if you haven't accepted his light through Jesus Christ just lift your hand if you want to do that today anybody in the house God wants you to know and experience his goodness his light HIS HOPE, HIS LIFE. FOR THE REST OF US, IS IT EASY TO LET YOUR LIGHT SHINE? OR IS IT EASIER TO KIND OF HIDE THAT AND NOT STAND OUT? IF YOU WANT TO BE A BETTER LIGHT SHINING IN THE DARKNESS, IF YOU WANT THE LIGHT OF CHRIST TO SHINE THROUGH YOU MORE IN YOUR WORKPLACE, IN YOUR FAMILY, IN YOUR NEIGHBORHOOD, IN YOUR SCHOOL, WHEREVER YOU ARE, IF THAT'S YOU TODAY AND THAT'S YOUR DESIRE, JUST LIFT YOUR HAND. QUITE FRANKLY, THAT SHOULD BE ALL OF OUR DESIRES. THAT SHOULD BE THE DESIRE OF EVERY PERSON HERE, THAT WE SHINE THE LIGHT OF JESUS MORE AND MORE. SO LET'S PRAY TOGETHER AND THEN WE'RE GOING TO SING A SONG OF WORSHIP. Father. I pray, Lord, that all of our hearts would long to live the way you have outlined in Scripture and challenged us today to live so that our light, the light of Jesus, would shine through us and those around us could come to know you even as we have come to know you. It has been a challenging word today, but I know, Lord, that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you will help us as we submit to you, as we look to you for the strength and the power work of your holy spirit in us to be salt and light in the world around us help us help us lord to be good representatives and shine our light in this world we love you today we ask this in jesus name.